Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word. We know that it provides for us insight and wisdom on how we are to live this life in preparation for the next. You have told us what is right and what is wrong and what we can expect, what will take place in the future. And we ask that we would not quickly shun it or poo-poo it, so to speak, because we just don't want to believe. We had asked that you would give us or increase our faith, Lord, for those areas which we find difficult and, and hard to accept truths which are in your word. We pray that we would just make them our own as you give us guidance by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 13, we're going to read from verse 13 through verse 18. It says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. There was a problem in the church in Thessalonica. Some had said that the day of the Lord had already come and people were gathered together in heaven already. And there was some misinformation. Apparently, there was this letter that was being passed around that was supposedly from the apostles or even from Paul saying that all this had taken place. Now, this idea of falling asleep, we have to explain that. I think most of us know in here that when a believer dies, the Bible considers them to be falling asleep, and that's in the bodily form. The body goes into the grave, and it can even decompose completely, but we will be reunited with that body in the future. The state that we are in once we die, the the Scripture says that once we die, we go to be in the presence of the Lord. There's either here or there's with the Lord. Scripture does not tell us that there is any place else that we go. There is no purgatory. There is no way station. We don't have to work off sins. The Scripture just tells us in several different places that when we die here, we immediately are ushered in to the presence of the Lord. And then when we're reunited, it's like our body was asleep. Now, Scripture tells us also in 1 Corinthians that this body is merely a seed of what is to come. That this body, if you take an example of it being like an apple seed, it is in comparison to the seed and to the tree that is produced. So the body we have now is the seed. The body we will have is like the tree. It is going to be of a different glory, of a different kind. But the body, or the scripture tells us that this body is the seed. And so those who die, who are in the Lord, who are believers, who are disciples of Jesus Christ... It is said they go to sleep, then they will be resurrected. Now, when a believer, or excuse me, when an unbeliever dies, we sorrow for them. When a believer dies, we sorrow for ourselves because we miss them, but we will see them again. But the person who is an unbeliever who dies, they have no hope. Now, remember, the Bible does not teach the doctrine of total annihilation. That means when we die... We are going to be conscious forever. We are created in the image of God. God is an eternal being, and our spirits will last forever. They will never cease to exist. We don't go into an eternal sleep. We are conscious from the point that we die, whether we go to hell or Hades, the place of waiting, and expect judgment in the future, or we go to heaven. We will exist forever and that's why somebody who dies without the lord they have no hope everything that we do here is reflected in what we receive in heaven all our reward is given to us for what we do here there's no way to work off sins once we have died or that we can work off sins for others that is a false doctrine we cannot do that we cannot increase their standing in the lord or increase their station and anything that they might receive from God. Scripture simply tells us what we do here, it will remain forever as far as our reward is concerned. 
So sleep was a common way to express death in the ancient world, but among the pagans it was almost always seen as an eternal sleep. In David Guzik's commentary, he quotes two poets, one Roman poet, Catalyst. He said, the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. And also a Greek poet, Theocritus, he said, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. And so they even understood that once you die, that's it, but they felt there is no coming to life again. There is no resurrection. There is no consciousness after the body dies. Now, this idea of cemeteries, we have cemeteries that, if you go back to the original Latin or Greek derivation of the word cemetery, it just means to put to sleep. And so when you go to a cemetery, it's a place where the bodies are sleeping because we know that everybody will be resurrected, whether it's in the rapture of the church or it's at the great white throne judgment, everybody who has ever existed will come to life. When I was teaching the youth group this last week, we were talking about the body, what kind of form will it be in when we get to heaven, will we have an intermediate body, things like that. And I asked the question, I said, where is Adam's body, the first man who was created? And of course, we went back and forth a little bit and I said, it is non-existent. I said, it decomposed. It actually went through the flood. All the atoms and molecules are the molecules all separated. Those molecules were in the soil. Those soil molecules that were there were probably taken up in the grasses and maybe a cow ate the grass and now those molecules are in the crowd in the cow and you've eaten the cow and so you probably have some molecules of atom in your own body it's kind of ridiculous to explain it that way but that that's exactly what happens and then the question well how is god going to resurrect the body it's not hard for god to put back together the body however he wants to do it. It's going to be a supernatural act. And that is going to happen to us. Now, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, who are in the ground or who have been cremated, and that was part of the question in the youth, well, what happens if you cremate the body? What, what's going to take place? It's not hard for God. He can reconstitute the body. And so those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, they are going to be resurrected at the rapture of the church. That's the next thing in the prophetic timeline uh, in scripture. They will be resurrected and they will be instantly translated from the grave to meet the Lord in the clouds in the air. And we'll read the other scriptures that deal with the rapture. But after they are taken up, then we who are alive, who believe in Jesus Christ, will be instantly translated to meet the Lord in the air. And remember, the rapture is different than the second coming. Second coming, Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives, places his foot on there, according to the book of Zechariah. And then there is a great valley that separates the cemeteries that are there, opens up to the gate beautiful from the Mount of Olives to the gate beautiful, and he walks right through. That's what he is going to do when he comes back. The rapture, he only comes to the clouds. And we go to see him in the clouds. And according to John chapter 14, verse 1, that I'll read in a minute, he goes and takes us back to heaven. And we stay there for a period of time. So this word rapture. Now, not too long ago and on several occasions in the past, I've heard people say the word rapture is not in the church. Therefore, you shouldn't believe in the rapture. And I always say the word Bible is not in the, in the excuse me, the word rapture is not in the Bible. And then I tell them, well, the word Bible is not in the Bible. Therefore, you shouldn't believe in the Bible either because that word is not there. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Should you believe in the Trinity? Well, yes, they are. So the rapture is taught in the scripture. We just choose to use coming from the Latin and from the Greek, the words caught up. We translate that into rapture or snatching away. Imagine if somebody came up and I've seen this like little videos where kids are in dangerous peril like somebody is riding a three-wheeler coming down is going to mow down a toddler and the father grabs the child by the nap of the neck and just yanks them back and holds on to them that's what the rapture is the rapture is we're going to be snatched away from any kind of harm which is there it means to seize to carry off by force to seize on claim for oneself eagerly to snatch out or away And so in the Latin Vulgate, it is there, rapio, to snatch, to grab, carry off, abduct. And then I was reading one article about this, 
And the person was trying to say there is no rapture, and that's not the word for rapture in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And they said, you know, the word means rape. That's what it means. And I, I thought to myself, really? You're going to say that in First Thessalonians chapter 4, instead of using the word rapture to mean snatching away, you're going to say you're being raped. That's what it is? And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. And by the way, that is the fifth definition of the word rapio, if you go back to the Latin Vulgate. But it doesn't translate like that in the context in which it is given. I've seen people just go to ends of the earth to try to avoid what is in Scripture or to change the doctrine because they don't agree with it. And that's one of the worst ones that I've seen. And then there is harpazo, which is in the Greek, that is also used in the translation of snatching away. And those words give us what we have known as the doctrine of the rapture. So it is, is this idea that God grabs hold of us, takes us, we are in the clouds with him, and then he ushers us into heaven. While we're up in heaven, that is the time of the tribulation period, which I'll explain a little more. And before we come back to the earth, we have what is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, some scriptures that deal with this rapture. If you have your Bibles or you have your... Uh, Phones and your Bible app is on there. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> I'm going to read from verse 50 to verse 54. It says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit, or the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable the mortal with immortality then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory so this is the other section that deals with the rapture of the church in the new testament that is very specific it is explicit that there is a time where we will be snatched away. John chapter 14, verse 1 through verse 4. This is what I quoted earlier. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And of course, Jesus is the way. If we believe in him, we are going in this event of the rapture. Now, you might think, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, is there anything that speaks of the rapture? And sometimes when you go to the scriptures, in the Old Testament especially, and you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament, if you go to the Old Testament, it interprets what's going on in the New Testament and vice versa. It's concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. And sometimes when a scripture is given, there is a dual fulfillment of scripture. For instance, the Passover. We know that there was a Passover for the Jews. They had the sacrificial lamb. They put the blood on the doorposts and lentils of the house and the angel of death passed over. Well, Jesus in the New Testament is the sacrificial lamb. So God foreshadowed who Jesus would be by having the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament. You also would have different festivals. For instance, the festival of Pentecost, the festival of ingathering, where they would gather in the first fruits. And Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So it is something that they practice in the Old Testament and found its fulfillment in the New Testament. Well, what about the rapture? Is there anything <clears throat> that might have been fulfilled in the Old Testament, but also points to the New Testament as far as the rapture is concerned? And there is Isaiah chapter 26, verses 19 through 21. I'll read it to you here. And it refers to the resurrection at the end of the time. It says, but your dead will live, their bodies will rise. And this is referring specifically to the nation of Israel. And if you read Ezekiel chapter 37, those bones, those bones, those crazy bones, you know, the knee bones connected to the thigh bone and all of that, those songs that came up, it deals with Ezekiel 37. 
It says, you who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the door behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. So this is a promise given to the nation of Israel at the time it was written that don't worry, there's going to be restoration for the nation of Israel. But for us as well, it is the rapture of the church that says, go and hide yourselves a little while in my chambers until the wrath has passed by. We know that the seven-year period, the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel is a period of God's wrath. Uh, Revelation chapter 6 talks about the wrath of the lamb. Have you ever seen a a lamb be wrathful? I haven't. Not at all. A lion, yes. Uh, A lamb, no. They just kind of put their ears up and they become quiet. They don't say anything. But this is the wrath of the lamb that is coming. Well, who's the lamb? We know that it is Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb that was prophesied in the Old Testament. See how all this is just woven together? And you have to be able to look at the stitches in the fabric and go, okay, that's that's how we understand these things. We can't just simply toss this one out and say it, it is meaningless. Every single word that is given to us in the scripture has meaning for us, especially when it comes to particular doctrines like this, the doctrine of the rapture of the church. Now, to understand the rapture of the church, there's terms that are all around it. And this whole realm of study is known as eschatology study of end times things and you have to be able to adapt the vocabulary of everything that takes place in the old testament and new testament to understand what's going to happen at the end now remember we all have a desire to know where we came from what's right and wrong the meaning of everything that is out there and where we're going and this deals with where we're going And God wanted us to know what's going to happen in the future. And he was very explicit on much of this. Now, the rapture, it is a mystery. What I mean by that, in the Old Testament, it was really never talked about or disclosed. It was hidden, I believe, in Isaiah chapter 26, but it was never disclosed. Just like the church was a mystery. It was never, excuse me, disclosed in the Old Testament. And so... This rapture is something that is new in the New Testament, not previously revealed to the people in the nation of Israel or the world. Then there is Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 is very important, and it deals with uh, Gog and Magog and uh, Rosh, which is Russia and Iran and Persia, all of those countries that are over there in Eastern Europe as well as the country of Russia. And all of that takes place with the rapture in mind. Now, people have differing views, which I'll get into, about when the rapture takes place, but it is based really upon Ezekiel 38. Then there's this idea of the tribulation and great tribulation. And again, this is the vocabulary that we have to understand. The tribulation and the great tribulation is that period of seven years. Seven years that if you go to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, I believe it is, it talks about the 77s or the 70th week of Daniel. And there's this week of years that's coming that has not been fulfilled. And I'm not going to go too deep into that. But God told us it's for the time in the future. And Daniel is certainly prophetic. He, he named out generals and kingdoms that would rise and fall. And he told us what would take place in the future and what kind of kingdom would be here in the future. Well, it deals with this time of the tribulation and the great tribulation, seven years. Now, the first half of that or all of it is referred to as the tribulation. But the last three and a half years are referred to as the great tribulation. It's a time of tremendous turmoil on the earth. Now, you have to understand also, according to Daniel chapter 9, that this Antichrist, and I call him the final Antichrist, because history has had several Antichrists in it, he is going to make a treaty. He's going to make a treaty with Israel for seven years. And I'll get to why this is important in a moment. And then the same Antichrist declares himself to be God at the midpoint 
of the tribulation. Stands in the temple, says, I'm God, stops the daily sacrifice, which is there, and literally all hell breaks loose on earth. So this is what the Antichrist, or the final Antichrist, does. At the end of his reign is Armageddon. At the beginning is Ezekiel 38, that battle. At the end of the seven years is what is known as Armageddon. Then there's the millennium, which is a thousand-year reign of Christ, and after that is the great white throne judgment. So that's kind of the timeline. So if I could spell it out for you again, rapture. From the rapture, Antichrist is introduced, seven years of tribulation. After the tribulation, thousand-year reign of Christ. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, great white throne judgment. That's where everybody gets judged, everybody gets resurrected. People go to heaven or they go to hell after that. Gehenna, where there is uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth and the, the worm does not die. And so that's the timeline of eschatology. Now, where are we? You have the rapture, you have the tribulation, all of that. There are some people believe that all of that is a myth, that it's not true, that we're just going to continue going on. They're called full preterists. That, you know, one day in the future, you know, God can come back and, and that'll be great, but we're just going to continue on. That none of this is literal. Then there are those who believe, they're partial preterists, that all of that stuff, the tribulation and the destruction of the temple and all of that already took place in the past. And because of that, from Revelation chapter 18 to the end of the book, then that is going to be literally fulfilled and Jesus is coming back. But there is no rapture of the church. And then there are those who talk about the rapture is here and before that, that's where we are. We're right here. So the next thing to take place is the rapture of the church. So it is an event. And I think you can believe that it is in scripture. I gave you the scriptures for that. You can walk away going, wow, there's a rapture of the church. I never knew that. And for me, the first time I heard this, I go, what? What are you talking about? We're just going to be translated from here to the air? And I, I just, it was almost too fanciful for me once I heard it, but I trust the scriptures. I've endeavored to see if they're truthful or not, and it says it, and so therefore I now believe it. I hold to it. It is the process of separation of all believers or the church, both the living and the dead, from this world to the kingdom of God. That's what it is, if you want to just give it a definition. And it's where we transform or get our bodies transformed from the physical to the spiritual. Once that happens, there will be no death, no sickness, no hunger, no thirst, no problems whatsoever with those bodies. Now, what will we look like? I think we'll kind of look like we do now. Uh, just like Jesus, when they showed up, when he showed up, the disciples recognized him. It was him. Well, there are a couple that were on a, a trip that they didn't recognize him, but God opened their eyes and, and it was like, oh, that was Jesus. Did our, our hearts burn within us? So we're going to look like we do now. But we have the ability to shine like the stars in heaven. That would be Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. And so we're going to be radiating light. But when we're down here during the millennial reign of Christ, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But our bodies are going to be like Jesus Christ. We're not going to have to eat to survive. Jesus has life that he doesn't need food to survive. He's dwelling in heaven right now. He may be eating. He may not be eating. And he, maybe he could sleep, but I don't think you need to once you have your glorified body. It's not going to be necessary to sleep. And so all of those things are a little bit of mystery for us, but we know that we get the spiritual body and we're never going to die and we're never going to suffer in our physical body or in our spiritual bodies anymore. So the purpose this first it's an event and then the purpose is to separate all believers from the time of wrath that is to come upon the earth god's wrath is coming and it's a specific time where even the world will recognize in the book of revelation the sixth seal that gets broken they recognize it is the wrath of the lamb or the wrath of god and it's going to get so bad they're going to say this could not happen any other way except god is going to do it now Wrath defined, or this time of wrath, several names are given for it in Scripture. It is called the time of trouble, the day of trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble, the day of wrath, the day of the Lord, the wrath of the Lamb, the day of indignation, the day of sorrows, the day of distress, and the 70th week of Daniel. And there are others, but that gives you a flavor or an idea what this time period is going to be like. 
And it is where the, the gathering together of the church, the bride for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, when is that wedding supper going to take place? Some people will say, as soon as we get to heaven, we're going to get our reward. The Bema Seat of Christ, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. After that, they say, well, it's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Some people say, no, it's the interval between the end of the tribulation period and the beginning of the millennium because there's a looks like a 35-day period in there. Some people say it's in there. Whatever the case, the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to take place in heaven. Now, we are the church, the bride of Christ, and it's like the wedding ceremony, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It all takes place there. The reward is given, and then we're coming back with Jesus Christ according to the book of Revelation. So the gathering together of the church, the bride for the wedding supper of the Lamb is the purpose of the rapture of the church so we can dwell in heaven in our new spiritual bodies. Now the Old Testament, there are precursors in the Old Testament, as I just said. You have Amos chapter 3 verse 7, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. And that's where I was talking about like Pentecost and Passover. Remember Jonah? Jonah was eaten by the fish, not a whale, but a fish, pretty tight environment there. Some people say he actually died. Some people said, no, that he just remained inside the fish and he didn't die. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me, but Jesus said, no, see the fulfillment of that is going to be the resurrection. That's again, how we know how the rapture was pointed out to us in the old Testament concealed, but in the new Testament revealed Jesus was going to be translated back up to heaven he is going to get his resurrected body and he told us about the rapture and all that's going to take place now they wanted a sign you know when it came to jonah and the uh and the fish they wanted a sign back then that jesus everything that he was saying was going to be true and right and remember that's the sign that he gave him he goes no sign will be given to you a wicked and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. And so that might seem fanciful too, not only the rapture, but the resurrection from the dead. How many people have you seen that have gotten up and walked out of their caskets? No one. And it's something that is unusual. And if you tell that to the world and you say, you're going to be resurrected. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Who's done that before? Well, funny that you should ask because there has been people, one person in specific, Jesus Christ. He is the one that rose from the dead. Oh yeah. How do you know that's true? Because the Bible is true. How do you know the Bible is true? Check it out. It's prophetic. And you see how the witnessing can take place on this, that you can tell people who are not believers, there's a judgment to come and you can escape the judgment. Are you interested? And you tell them how Jesus came and died for us and that's the gospel the essence of the gospel is being able to do that now i digress is there anybody else that went to heaven without dying because the rapture first the dead in christ rise first they go to heaven then those who remain are caught up to meet the lord in the air together with them and is there anybody else in all of history in biblical history that went straight to heaven without dying of course you know Most of you know who they are. Number one is Enoch. Number two is Elijah. Now, Enoch is a symbol of the rapture. He is the forerunner. Like I told you, the Old Testament has forerunners to all these events that take place in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 5, verse 23. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. God just snatched him. Nap of the neck, you're coming with me, buddy. And then the flood happened after that. And Elijah, Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11, Elisha was his servant. He, he said to uh, Elijah, no, Elijah asked him the question, Elisha. Remember, there's Elijah and Elisha. Elisha was the disciple of Elijah. Elijah turned to Elisha and said, is there anything that I can do for you because my time of departure is coming real close? And he goes, yeah, I want a double portion of the spirit that is on you. And he goes, oh, you ask a hard thing. He goes, well, if you're with me when I get to take into heaven, then you'll get the double portion. (laughs) And he goes, oh, 
Okay, if you're not with me, you don't get the double portion. I would have stuck to that guy like glue. You wouldn't have been able to get rid of me. Well, in Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, As they were walking along and, and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more than he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart and he actually did twice the number of miracles that elijah did and he got a double portion of the spirit because he saw that so elijah was taken to heaven too now this is where i separate with those who believe that when people die they go down to hell i don't believe that i know that the creeds teach that but what it actually says in scripture is the lower regions and from heaven earth is the lower regions And so Elijah was taken to heaven. Enoch was taken to heaven. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he had Moses and Elijah. Did God go down to hell, snatch them out of hell, give them nice, glorious bodies, and then put them back into hell because Jesus hadn't been crucified yet? Now there's all kinds of problems with that. And I've talked about that before, but that's just a, a side event. We are going to heaven when we get raptured. And so the New Testament, there are... Four things that must take place before the day of the Lord. Now, I want to give you this too. The day of the Lord, some people disagree on how long it is. You know, is it the last three and a half years of the tribulation? Is it all seven years? Is it a 24-hour day at the end of the tribulation? This is where everybody starts disagreeing because we know there is the day of the Lord. Pretty much all views on the rapture agree there is the day of the Lord and it's coming and it's a time of God's wrath. And people disagree about when the wrath of God is coming. Is it the full seven years? Is it the three and a half years? Or is it after five and a half years because there's the pre-wrath view which i'll get into in a moment but the four things that have to happen before the day of the lord comes this time of wrath is the first one elijah must come this is malachi chapter 4 verse 5 see i will send you the prophet elijah before the great and dreadful day of the lord comes so elijah has to come first before the day of the lord begins now you might say what does that mean it comes before the rapture maybe maybe not can't be dogmatic on it because we don't know the scripture is not dogmatic on it but he has to come before the day of the lord starts second thing that has to happen before the day of the lord begins is the rebellion the apostasy the falling away. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, which means there are going to be those who claim to be believers that walk away and say, I am no longer. There's going to be a great falling away of people who follow Christ. Now we see a lot of that today, but there is going to be this huge event that if anybody was a believer looking at it, you'd say, Oh, that's a huge falling away then the third thing that has to happen before the day of the lord begins is the man of lawlessness has to be revealed now in second thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 it reads and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called god or is worship so that he sets himself up in god's temple proclaiming himself to be god now for the jews their day of recognition of the man of lawlessness is going to be in the middle of the tribulation period where he does the abomination which makes desolate daniel talked about it Jesus said it is a future time in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. He said that's a future event. Antiochus Epiphanes was a forerunner to that, and I believe he's actually talked about in the book of Daniel chapter 8. 
where he will come in and be like the Antichrist who goes into the temple and commits a sacrifice of a pig and scatters the pig's blood, desecrates the temple. He was a forerunner to that actual Antichrist which will come. And the reason we know that this takes place, you know, I'm going to hold off on that one. I'm going to talk to you about the man of lawlessness here in a moment. But the other thing that has to take place before that seven-year period commences is Joel chapter 2, verse 31. It says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is repeated in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, I want to work on the timing of all this. Does this happen before the rapture? Does this happen after the rapture? Is there a time period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation period? Is the Antichrist available to us to know who he is before the rapture? Is he going to be available to know who he is after the rapture? How exactly is this going to work? Well, let me give you five views on the timing of the rapture. First, there's the pre-tribulational rapture, which this pastor holds to that the rapture is going to take place before the seven-year tribulation period. I am a pre-tribulationalist. I'm also a pre-millennialist. I believe Jesus comes back before the millennial reign. There's the mid-tribulational view, where people get raptured in the middle of the tribulation, at the abomination which makes desolate. I don't hold to this view because this takes away the doctrine of eminency. Eminency is where you can expect Jesus to rapture us at any time, at any moment. If you believe in the mid-tribulational rapture, you know exactly when the rapture is going to happen. And scripture says, no man knows the day or the hour. And so that ruins it for me. I'm not a mid-tribulationalist. Post-tribulational rapture. This is the U-turn theory. Everything takes place, the seven-year tribulation period, and then we get raptured and come right back down because the thousand-year reign of Christ. What happened to the marriage supper of the Lamb and all of, you know, the rewards that we get in heaven and all of that? And, and it just doesn't make sense. And there's other reasons for that, but I'm not going to go into that. Then there's the pre-wrath view. There are those who hold that once you enter the tribulation period, once you hit the midsection of the tribulation period, and five and a half years into it, that's the time God's wrath starts between the abomination which makes desolate and the middle and that five and a half month period, that's Satan's wrath. And we, as believers, they believe, will have to endure Satan's wrath, but not the last portion of scripture or the last time of the tribulation period, which is God's wrath. Because we're not appointed to God's wrath, which scripture is clear on this. And then there's the view, there's no rapture at all. So that's the different views of the rapture. Now remember, it relies on what you believe about the day of the Lord. The pre-trib, the day of the Lord, is the entire seven-year period. The mid-trib, the day of the Lord, lasts only the last three and a half years. The post-trib believes that it's a 24-hour day at the end of of the tribulation just one day and then there's the pre-wrath which believes that the church will face the persecution of the antichrist but not jesus christ and that's the last after the five and a half years go by that's the last section right there and that's the day of the lord let me ask you if i said something like back in my day is that a 24-hour day no it's not it's not a 24 back in my day you know when i was a young man well how long was i a young man for years i was a young man well i still am because i'm not very old you know but i was a young man back then back in the day you might say back in the day are you referring to a specific day no you're not referring to a specific day so a day can also be referred to as something that is not night which would be like 12 hours right well, a time period that also includes night, a 24-hour day. That's what you call it. And it's, it can either be like 12 hours or it can be 24 hours. Or how about I'm looking forward to the day of the wedding. That's a specific day and time. So you see all the ways a day can be used. Well, what about the day of the Lord? Is it referred to as a specific day or a specific time period? 
That's what you have to look for in Scripture. You can write this down, look it up later. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, if you know your timeline in eschatology, when will that happen? That happens all the way at the end, at the great white throne judgment. Forget about the tribulation. Forget about the thousand-year reign. It happens way at the end. It says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What that means is, it's not a day. It means it's unexpected. When you get to the end of the thousand-year reign, Satan's going to be released according to the book of Revelation, and he's going to wreak havoc and try to come against Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, and God is going to destroy him. Jesus is going to destroy him by the word of his mouth. That's it. Everything's done. He gathers up everybody. The earth is destroyed. The universe is destroyed, and the great white throne judgment takes place, and all the books are open. So the day of the Lord, when reference to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, is way at the end. It is not the tribulation period at all. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers, about the times and days, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, which means it's unexpected. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. When a woman goes in to give birth, does she have one pain and boom, there's the baby. Is that what happens? Now, I've been to the hospital several times with my own kids being born and grandkids being born. And there's the he panting and the focal point and the keggling and all of that stuff, if you remember what that is. And it takes place over hours. It doesn't just happen at one particular point. So he emphasizes it here. Labor pains like on a pregnant woman. They start like, okay. Yeah, I feel one. It's getting real tight. and She can still maintain. After that, the leather's being ripped up with her nails, and she's calling you every name in the book because this is your fault. And that's, you know, it's a progression that takes place. And God tells us it is going to be like that. So it is unexpected like the thief. You never know when the thief is going to show up. If you had have known, you would have prepared for it, like Jesus would say. But all these are the beginning of birth pangs, according to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8. He says, nation will rise against kingdom, kingdom, uh, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are stretched out, and that's before the day of the Lord. Those are the birth pangs that lead up to the day of the Lord. And in John chapter 16, verse 23, it says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything, but I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked me anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be made complete. This is the use of the word day. In that day, if you ask me anything in my name, was it a specific 24-hour day that they can only ask? And then after that day, all bets are off? No, he meant in the day, in the future. It's a long period of time. So when you look at the day of the Lord, can it be a specific 24-hour period? Yeah, it can be. Does it look like it is in reference to the rapture and the tribulation? No, I don't think so. I think the scriptural evidence is here that the day of the Lord is a period of time. It is years. It is not simply a 24-hour day like the pre-wrath people would tell you. And, and it's not just the three and a half because we have the precursors to that. Now, the precursors in Matthew chapter 6 deals with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first seal breaks open. What do you have? A rider on a white horse with a bow bent on conquest. Some people say he's Jesus Christ. I believe he's the Antichrist, the final Antichrist that shows up. When he shows up, according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, he makes a treaty with the nation of Israel. For how long? seven years he's the guy that's in charge at the making of the treaty before the day of the lord that means he's been around a while and when he shows up he could be here now but when that treaty is made that's when he is revealed but he cannot be revealed until we know that the book of second thessalonians it talks about he cannot be revealed until The Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit is in us. We are raptured at that particular point. And so you see how this works out as far as timing goes? 
you have the rapture and everything kind of centers around the rapture. When we're raptured, he will be revealed. Anybody that is a believer or, quote, claims to be a believer, if they see the signing of the treaty, you've missed the rapture, according to Scripture. So you have the rapture, the Antichrist signs a deal, he's already leading the world. He's the one that makes the treaty. Who, who would you have make a treaty with Israel right now? Would it be the United States? Would it be the United States and Russia? Would it be the United States, Russia, and China? Who would it be? It's one guy who makes the treaty. Then the tribulation starts. Seven years. And the first three and a half years, the Jews look at him and go, Whoa, that guy, he's like the Messiah politically and probably spiritually too. That's when they look at him. So if you have the rapture of the church, the Antichrist shows up, signs the treaty, the Antichrist could be here. He could already be moving. Who is he? I don't know. I have no idea who the guy is. But he's going to rise up through several kings with the area of the revived Roman Empire. Rome and France and Germany and all those people are going to come together and there's going to be ten kings that rule over them. Three of those kings are going to be deposed by the Antichrist and he's going to rise up. We could see that and still not be quite sure. Or we may not see that, but we could see the formation of that ten king Membership, And we still don't know who the Antichrist is. So when does that take place in reference to the rapture? It could be here on this side of the rapture. Or it could be here on this side. All we know is when he signs that treaty, we're not here and he's already in power. And he's been here for a while and that's the breaking of the first seal. A pre-tribulational, pre-millennial <coughs> rapturist or uh, Adventist, if, if they believe that, it is going to be evident to us that we are out of here before the Antichrist is actually revealed at that signing. And from then, the breaking of the first seal is the beginning of the tribulation period. After that, you have the, the other four horses, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse. All of those guys come on the scene. And it is going to be a terrible place to be. Now, I've got ten minutes and we have communion Well, we know that believers are to are going to avoid the wrath of God. First Thessalonians one ten, who rescues us from the coming wrath. First Thessalonians five nine, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Revelation three ten, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. Noah escaped the wrath of God in the flood. We know that he was raised up above the flood, and. All of those things are very important to know and understand that if you believe in Jesus Christ, we're not going through the wrath of God. We're not going through the seven-year period of tribulation or three-and-a-half-year or the pre-wrath view. None of that is going to take place. We're not involved in the wrath. Remember, the wrath of God, according to the pre-tribulational view, happens at the beginning of the seven-year period where the Antichrist signs the treaty with the nation of Israel, allowing them to build their temple. Why is the wrath of God coming? Why is it even taking place? Why doesn't he just wipe everything out and start over? Well, he's going to judge what's here. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So it's because of sin, God is coming to judge that sin. I have to think of how much to give you here. I'm just going to reiterate why I believe that the rapture will happen before the tribulation begins. The Antichrist is the one who makes the treaty with Israel. The Antichrist cannot be ushered onto the scene until the Holy Spirit is removed. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. It says, the one who restrains him has to be removed. The Holy Spirit is in us, and therefore, we have to be removed. We are the ones that God uses to restrain evil. And the Antichrist will be released at the breaking of the final seal in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. So that's when the wrath of God begins. It's not just the wrath of God and the wrath of Satan. God uses Satan to perform his wrath, just like he did with the Assyrian army when the Jews went into Uh, the dispersion or the diaspora and also Babylon. God used Babylon to judge, to carry out his wrath on the nation of Israel. There is a precedent set for that in scripture. Final thing. Now we're going to go a little bit over here. I want to give you this before we get into next week. Those people who do not believe 
in the rapture or that the rapture takes place before the tribulation. I want to say it as nicely as I can, but they're just misinformed and they're wrong. Now, why are they wrong? One of the first things they say is this is a Johnny Come Lately doctrine that happened in the Niagara conferences with John Darby in the late 1800s and went into the 19th century. They say that's when it came up. It is not true. I have references in front of me here. I probably have a dozen references between not only the scriptures that were written in the first century, but all the way to the fourth century of the early church fathers and what they said about a pre-tribulational rapture. They say it was not taught in the early church. Oh, contraire, it was taught. Like, for instance, Eusebius. Eusebius was discipled by Polycarp. Polycarp was discipled, do you know who? John the Apostle. John the Apostle discipled Polycarp. Polycarp discipled Eusebius. Eusebius talks about not having to go through the tribulation period. I have several quotes here. There's also Ephraim the Syrian who lived from 306 to 373 A.D. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. Blessed is he who unceasingly remembers the fear of Gehenna and hastens to the sincerely repent for he shall be delivered from the great tribulation. That's just one quote. I also have the shepherd of Hermes. I have quotes from Arrhenius, which are here. Quotes from Cyprian. And of course, I just mentioned Eusebius. There are so many quotes that the rapture is something that takes place before the tribulation, was taught in the early church. And I think I've told you in the past, I actually had a, a talk with one guy. He was a tile setter on a job that I was on. And he goes, the rapture doesn't take place before the tribulation. I said, okay, if I can get you some... Uh, evidence that it was talked about in the first century, second century, third century, fourth century. Would you change your view? And he goes, well, maybe. I went and got it in writing, said it before him. He still wouldn't change his view. Stubborn man, stubborn. May we not be stubborn like that. May we hold to what the scripture says. And if we're wrong, we change it. And by the way, I could be wrong and I'm willing to change it. If somebody gives me evidence from the scripture, I'll change it in a heartbeat. And we have to be able to do that. So what we're going to do now, they're going to lower the lights in the center. Kim's going to come up. And we're going to celebrate the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the reason that we're going to do that is because he died for us. He gave us his blood. He gave us his body. And the scripture says, if we don't drink of his blood and eat of his body, we have no part in the resurrection with him. Now, we're not doing that actually physically. We're just remembering it. We're doing it as a memorial. So as Kim plays, you, I think most of you guys know the routine. When she starts playing, if you need to say a prayer to God and ask for forgiveness of sins and give, give thanks to him, that's all good. Then we'll start from the front, work our way to the back, and you come up and you get the little cup here and you go back to your seat. And you may want to work on the way for a little bit. It's kind of hard to get out there without destroying the whole thing. And wait till where we can receive it together. And when we do, I'll say a few words and we'll pray as we receive the communion. So go ahead, Kim.